1: from the hottest topics coming across our news desk, I'm Elsona Lloyd, and this is Housing Wire Daily. Today's episode features another crossover episode of the RMD podcast, hosted by Chris Clow, editor at HW Media's latest acquisition, Reverse Mortgage Daily. In this episode, Jamie Hopkins, managing director of Carson Coaching and director of retirement research at Carson Group, as well as a member of the Academy for Home Equity and Financial Planning, explains why it's so hard for consumers to remove emotions when making financial decisions as well as how the reverse mortgage industry approaches long-term care as the COVID-19 pandemic shapes the business's future. But before you listen, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Want to give your customers the streamlined mortgage experience they expect? Fannie Mae's digital mortgage solutions are fast, efficient, contactless, and they save paper. Our digital mortgage solutions provide efficiency for you, convenience for your customers, and deliver a great experience at every stage of the mortgage cycle. Own the mortgage experience with Fannie Mae's innovative solutions. Visit Fannie Mae.com slash go digital.
0: Jamie, thank you so much for joining me on the RMD podcast. I appreciate that you made the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Chris.
2: Always good to connect
0: with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I always like to start off episodes of this show with something of an origin story, uh particularly for our reverse mortgage industry audience. So if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself for the few people who don't know who you are and uh how you got your start in the realm of finance in general.
2: Yeah, so uh, you're like origin story. I did not get bitten bitten by a radioactive spider. <laughs> Ah uh, shucks. Uh, yeah, I know. So uh my superpowers are, are limited probably at this point just to my uh hair length and that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> but uh yeah, so uh you know, kind of my tie into this space really came from uh, you know, uh, Don Graves, Shelley Giordano, Wade Fowl are, are all friends of mine in, in addition to colleagues at different points in time. But uh, I was uh, teaching at American College and building a retirement income program with David Littell, RICP. And, you know, during that time period, right, it's a little bit different than a lot of other people in financial services in the sense that You know, you probably entered into a company as an advisor, as an insurance person, as a salesperson, as a mortgage person. And so your compensation to somewhat dictated what you think about. Well, reality is academics, uh, our compensation is not really dictated by products or strategies. So, you know, I think that we were able to take a little bit more of just an open view uh, and not just in the reverse or just in the home equity, but kind of across the board when we were building out the program because it didn't matter. Like we weren't selling anything. So uh, we just kind of started looking at the numbers at that time and uh, you know, the coordinated strategy research that Barry Sachs and John Salter were doing right around then too was coming out and it just kind of ended up building it into the program. And very quickly, I found out that there actually weren't that many people <laughs> in the financial services space or academia that were really looking at this intersection of housing wealth and retirement at all. Like it's just, I mean, it's still fairly void of attention today, but I mean, it was close to nothing back in, what is that, 2012.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. Well, uh, kind of jumping off of that, I'm curious about diving a little bit deeper. What was it that first got your attention, about the potential ways that reverse mortgages could be beneficial to retirees. Were you swayed in those days by some of the reputational chatter that still persists about the industry and the product category? Or was there a scenario that brought you a greater level of understanding for reverse mortgages? Because everybody seems to have a different in to to the product category.
2: Yeah. And and so like the reputational stuff, for whatever reason, none of it I guess uh, I started off kind of doubting everyone, <laughs> so I, I, you know, I didn't really uh, dislike any product strategy more than another. Um, so if you go back further in my origin story, one of the things that really got me interested in financial services was actually I got to work on one of Bernie Madoff's cases when I was clerking in the appellate Division, oh, and wow. so that was the you know that's like the pinnacle of the trust conversation, but in the negative side, right? That people were implicitly trusting of this relationship um and again right bernie uh he, he did have a real business early on and it kind of fell apart and then just became them dumping money into their own bank account and not even investing and you know he passed away recently too and uh you know but I kind of looked at the whole industry as it, it just lacks a degree of trust in general. So when I look at products and strategies or compensation models, I don't necessarily take a view that anyone is inherently bad or inherently worse or better than something else. So I try to take as most of an agnostic approach as I can to all strategies, products, compensation models and start from that point. So to me, I think that's been helpful, but again, right? Like I got lucky enough that when I was coming into this particular aspect of my career, my compensation, right? I'm, I'm an academic. I was a professor and it didn't matter. I wasn't selling something. So if we took a harsh stance on something, that was okay. Like I've, I've, you know, I've taken some harsh stances on different things before because I felt like that's where the numbers, it's where the math and it's where the, you know, behavior might fall out. So it didn't really, uh, impact me in that sense, but the sense that reverse mortgages have and annuities for another instance, have a reputational, uh, issue. Is it really important, right? Like it's not to say that I am disregarding that, but it I try not to let those things influence my view of something, but then I do know like if we're going to get better usage of home equity and retirement, if we're going to get more secure retirement income, we need to break down some of those misconceptions or change the dynamic in conversation. And that's very very hard to do. I think, you know, over the last nine years, the reverse conversation has shifted a little bit. Um, and I think some of the you can tell by the media, we've done a media review, and that's actually improved over that time frame. So there is uh, you know, there, you could look at that as a data point to say there's been improvement out there. So it, it is improved. It, it is improved. Still probably has a long way to go.
0: I'm, I'm curious, uh, approaching things from the academic perspective and understanding the interactions that the emotions have with the perceptions of the reverse mortgage product, is that something that is, uh, can, can that be applied to other financial services as well? Are you surprised that as much emotion as there is comes into the fold or is that just kind of the nature of, of people dealing with their money?
2: Uh, yeah, I think that's probably more in the nature of people dealing with their money. <laughs> um, you know, people are people make emotional decisions, and there's this uh, a kind of uh balance out there when you think about uh, you know, behavioral finance, and people are that there was this uh, I, I would say, brief period of time, and it still exists today, where people are like, we need to get a you know emotions out of our money and out of our decision-making and actually reality is like we we really shouldn't do that (laughs) um our brain craves emotional data, right? Like we make better decisions when we include emotional data as part of the decision making. Like that's actually okay. And Now we don't want our emotions to completely override our analytical thinking and long-term goals. I mean, that's where we get to the right. What we don't want to have happen is get really excited and make a decision about something today or get really fearful and make a decision today that has a really negative five, 10 year, 20 year, 30 year compounding impact on ourselves, right? Like you might be at a store, you get really excited, you see something you want. Doesn't mean you can just take it, right? Like there's effects of that. So, um, you know, it's a similar thing where is we don't want to remove that emotion, but we definitely want to put frameworks in place so we can make quality decisions. And sometimes that's education. Sometimes it's access. Sometimes, you know, it's uh, decision framing. Um, sometimes it's just having a broader view of the timeline or horizon of the world. And so we can make more informed and healthier decisions.
0: You know, it seems like um, a perception exists among economists, or at least the, the outside perception of the field of economic study is that emotion just isn't involved. But it sounds like the way that you're describing it, that's not the case at all. You have to keep the emotions in mind in order to accurately predict and track the way that people are going to behave in the economic sphere.
2: Yeah. And and remember, like, that's kind of how economics developed, right, is that there was this more like, we're going to create models and traditional, uh, you know, uh, economics, we're going to be able to predict the way that people behave in these traditional economic models. And then what happened, right, that reality was different than the models, right? (laughs) Like, the models couldn't perfectly predict things, even if they were pretty close, right? Like, some of our market models and Testing philosophies, you know, things looked close, but there was always more noise, as I would say. There's more variation. And, you know, even things like the supply and demand curve, like it's pretty good. But then there's like weird aspects of it, like where sometimes, right, if you limit supply, you increase the demand, right? And and like, that's not necessarily how it's supposed to work. And other times you limit it and it hurts it, right? It's not uniform across everything. And sometimes you say, hey, well, if you increase price, what happens? Demand goes down. Well, it's not always the case either, right? Like there's been a was it the the one whiskey brand? And was it Cheval or whatever the whiskey? I'm forgetting which one it is. I think that's the one. And back, you know, back in the '90s, at one point, they were they would always end up on the bottom shelves at stores because they were a low cost. And they literally just decided to double prices, and their whiskey sales doubled, right? Only because the perception of the brand increased with the pricing. Now. In essence, that's a behavioral thing, right? Like it, it's not based off of traditional economics. It's not necessarily, quote unquote, rational that our decision making changed, not because of the product itself, the availability of it, or anything, quality. Just because of where they put the price, it changed our perception. I mean, that's emotional. That's that psychological behavior. And that impacts, you know, we're always biased. There's always nudges. There's always things that are pushing us in different directions. And, and reality is we just I don't even know if we like as we better understand it, if this is going to be healthier or not. I, I actually I, I question that, too. Um but uh, it's definitely there. And, you know, then we got Richard Thaler and Kahneman and we got more and more of this research. And so we're understanding this better and better now and the, the intersection um, of kind of, you know.
1: To listen to the full episode, head over to the RMD podcast now available on iTunes, Spotify, Google podcast and wherever else you get your podcast. Also, make sure to head over to reverse dot com. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. I hope you have a great weekend. If you haven't already, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on all the hottest stories crossing our news desk each and every day. The podcast is now available wherever you like to listen. We'll see you back here on Monday.